Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Well, good morning again, church. Good morning to our friends, guests with us. And it's great to have some of my colleagues, fellow Love Life missionaries in the house as well. That's a beautiful thing. Pray with me again because I I tell you, I I feel inadequate to have to preach this message in this text because it is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. And it's talking about our future home. And, And I don't think I can do it justice in this relatively short message, in this relatively short series. So... I ask you to join me in asking for the Spirit's help. Once again, Lord God, thank you for the opportunity, the privilege, the high honor it is to be in this text. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be a pleasing sacrifice to you. Help me say what should be said and help us hear what needs to be heard. Open the eyes and ears of our hearts that we would see, love, appreciate, learn, and then live and give the great truths from your law that we're about to hear. And this wonderful promise that we would just begin to absorb it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you may know, my son David and I were in Boston last weekend for one of our father-son sports and history road trips that we occasionally take. And one of the more fascinating, enjoyable things we saw there were the original birthplaces of the Adams family, the John Adams family, that is. Don't get carried away there. He was, in case you don't know, America's second president. And uh, the beautiful old farmhouse is still there called Peacefield. And and the story of the Adams family I've always found compelling. Uh, His marriage to Abigail is well documented, admired by many. And though their home is really beautifully preserved, it is. They died and their home needed a makeover of sorts to survive and to be able to be seen today. And guess what? Our, our homes, our physical homes, our flesh needs a makeover. And I'm looking forward to when that comes. Um, and that brought this theme of this series to my mind when I was there. And something that John Quincy Adams, who is our sixth president and John's son, said when someone once asked him how he was doing in conversation. And Adams replied something to the effect of, John Quincy Adams is well, sir, Very well. The house in which he has been living, referring to his body, is dilapidated and old, and he has received word from its maker that he must vacate soon. But John Quincy Adams is well, sir, very well. So he was talking about his earthly tent as a believer and it being torn down, but when it's gone, he's going to have a building from God that's eternal in the heavens. And I hope we share John Quincy's attitude on that fact. We need to. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, talking about our earthly bodies, it says there, indeed in this house we groan. We groan. We groan because of the pain and the suffering that is inherent in the flesh and the sin in this world that just permeates it. And we struggle with that. I mean, my recent cardiac episode at 60 plus years of old kind of reminded me of that. There was some groaning there. And we, and, and we groan because we can't be what we long to be yet. 
We yearn to be free from these bodies. And so we groan with the rest of creation, waiting eagerly, Romans 8 says, for the revealing of the sons of God that happens at the second coming. So we long to be clothed with an earthly body that becomes a heavenly body, and that's at the resurrection. And if you live in this world long enough, I think you long to be perfect, don't you? I mean, to be in a place where, like, everything works, everything feels right, everything around you is beautiful, everyone's in love with God, and everyone there is in love with each other, and there's perfect joy, and work is perfect, play is perfect. The New Agers have some idea of this. They call it nirvana. That's not really it. And Jesus gave a heads up on this to the criminal on the cross when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That word has the idea of just beauty. Okay? And I've heard it said before, I've heard this, everyone wants to go to heaven. It's just a lot of people don't want to run into God if they get there. But we know better, I think. Everything we should love the most, everything we should value the most, everything eternal is in heaven. Starting with God, because that's where he is, where his throne is, where his son is. It's what we pray about. How do we begin the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who, who art or is in heaven, right? So the story of the Bible, you might say, is the story of heaven coming back to this world, in a sense. As Pastor George taught us last time, heaven is our home, sweet home. As a Christian, you got to think of it that way a place being prepared for us by Christ. It's a promised place. In fact, Isaiah 57 says God dwells in that high and holy place. It's the Father's house. You see, even though the Father is spirit and he's omnipresent, that's just a big word that means he's everywhere at the same time, he still has a real dwelling place. He has an address, and we just don't physically know what it is right now. But Isaiah 63 says God looks down from heaven and can see his holy and glorious habitation. And we're going to jump around. You're going to need to be quick with your Bible today to follow me. I want you to follow me in certain places where we go, such as Psalm 33, verses 13 to 15, where it says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So there's omnipresence. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Who? So there's a place where God dwells. Think of it as headquarters. And that place is called heaven. And he can look out and see everything that we're doing as he's sovereignly ruling and reigning over the world. And then we also heard that Jesus said he's preparing a place that where he is, we may be also. So that place, that home, is there for us now if we die and go to him before he, Jesus, returns, before he comes back. But listen, this place, heaven right now, is not the same exact place that we're going to live and enjoy in, in perfected, glorified bodies forever. This place, heaven, right now, if you were to die today and you were to go there, it's full of peace now. The presence of Christ is there. Make no mistake about that. I mean, Paul, as we learned, 
said that he was hard-pressed whether he wanted to stay here and serve if he was let loose from prison or go there. He was almost looking forward to dying and going there. He said his desire was to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Right. And, you know, he had an advantage. He saw the coming attraction. Okay? Remember, the Lord took him up to the third heaven, which is the present heaven we're talking about. And Paul got a peek, kind of like what it's like today, even though he was commanded to keep the details secret when he came back. But that place is more spiritual than physical right now, which makes talking about it a bit tricky. Because again, it's a real place. Jesus is there with a resurrected physical body. And if you were to die today, and that's where you would go, you would be with him in some kind of intermediate bodily form that we don't know a lot about. But the heaven that we are talking about today in this series as well is our permanent eternal home, and that is a very, very physical place. What we're going to see today from the end of God's story of redemption and world history as we know it is a talk about the new and perfect place coming our way. After, by the way, after you're going to get there, according to the book of Revelation, the second coming of Christ, the near perfect, the near perfect heaven on earth of the millennial kingdom, that's to come, and then it's going to be followed by the great white throne judgment on all the unredeemed over history. But after all those end times events have taken place, the redeemed of all time are going to experience what I would call first a reunion and then secondly a restoration in this new perfect place we call heaven, our home sweet home. Those are the two points I want to make from this text. Those are the two facets of this new place that this beautiful text from Revelation is about. Let me tell you, this passage of Scripture, when you're down, when you have a loved one who is ill and a loved one in Christ near death, read them this text. Have them hear it over and over and over again. It's that good. It's a promise. Okay? So let's begin with the reunion here in the first three verses. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 21. This is John, the apostle writing. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So this old earth is what that's referring to, is passed away. It's gone away, it's departed. What's interesting there is that phrase, the sea was gone. Again, the apostle John is the author of this now. Understand he's written this while he's exiled on the island of Patmos at the end of the first century. He's the last surviving apostle of the originals. And he uses this word new here four times in the passage. And the term former or old is referenced there. So that's a pretty good indicator of the contrast between the earth and the new heavens and new earth to come. Old, new. Keep that in mind. Old, new. In fact, the word that's translated there, that Greek word is new, can refer to something that's superior. Not just old, but better in superior. And that's true when you're talking about planet Earth, for sure. In fact, it's used, that word in Matthew 9 by Jesus, 
when he was talking about the upgrade of the old covenant to the new covenant, and he talked about the fact that you can't put old wine in new wineskins because it'll burst open. So there's always the new better than the old. In fact, a great parallel of this comes in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 is an excellent parallel to this text. And you could read the whole chapter on your own, but verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So the earth, folks, is going to be literally restored, and there's going to be an extreme makeover of the planet. Romans 8.21 puts it this way. Paul says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, that's fascinating. That last phrase can blow by you if you don't pay attention. And what it's basically saying is this world, the new world, is going to be adapted to the glory of the children of God. It'll be made just for us. Now, how does the old earth pass away? How does it die? How is it renovated? Well, this is God's world, and he built it, so I think he can figure it out. Hebrews 11 calls it a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Okay? Now, for one thing, we may not have, according to the verse you just heard in Revelation 21, the sea or the oceans. It literally says the sea will be no more. You ask, why is that? I mean, oceans are beautiful, spectacular. One of, the, you know, one of the things I like best about South Florida is going to the beach just to look at the ocean, the shore, right? Why is that? I'm not sure. We can spiritually speculate, though. I tend to think with some scholars that suggest, or they make a good argument, that the sea is left out of the eternal state, at least a kind of a sea, and it's symbolic because of the negative connotation the sea had for first century people, especially the Jews. It's the kind of sea, remember back then, overflowing the rain, the fountains of the deep that God used to judge the world at the flood. They were Jews were literally scared to death of drowning. For them, that was the worst death imaginable. I mean, they knew the sea covered Pharaoh and his army at the Exodus. And you had this beast, Leviathan, this massive creature, may have been an early kind of a sea creature dinosaur, as described in the Old Testament, and he's going to be slain, and he made his home in the sea. And then you have the wicked that are compared to the troubled sea in the Bible, and it goes on and on and on. So the idea of the sea could be that that rocky, troubled kind of a sea is going to be missing from heaven. But as I say, God knows what to do with his creation, 2 Peter chapter 3 has a very graphic picture of this when it says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord, so that's his second coming, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, it'll come sudden, and then the heavens will, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies, when you hear that, think sun, moon, stars, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, does that mean this planet's going to be completely blown up and a ball of fire, some holocaust by God so he can start it over from scratch? It's possible. But I don't think so. I mean, I think 
did God completely do away with the earth when he did the reboot of it with Noah at the flood? No, he flooded it. He wiped out that population of people, but he kept the earth and he cleansed it literally and figuratively. He refreshed it. He repopulated it. So it was the same in a way, that earth, this earth, and it's going to be different in other ways. Just like back then, it was the same in some ways, different in other ways. That's the idea of these two words you hear about sometimes describing this, continuity and discontinuity. Some things continue, and then some things discontinue, okay? Verse 2, back in Revelation 21. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this reunion takes place in what Jesus has called also in Revelation, the city of my God. It's also called Mount Zion, which refers to the holy mountain there. And that's real central to the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Think of it as like a massive downtown. We're going to get into this in detail soon enough. It's a joining of heaven and earth. So God brings this dimension of heaven down and somehow joins it with a restored earth. And it has literally a city. And a city in the original language can refer to a walled town. And that's what this city is literally. A walled city, the shape of a cube, according to the description that we're going to get into more detail next time later in Revelation 21 and chapter 22. We're not talking about the Jerusalem of the millennial kingdom, folks. We're talking about the Jerusalem of the new heavens. You have to make that distinction. Like the writer of Hebrews said, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Talking about this. In fact, those faithful men and women of the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, it says they desired, they looked forward to, which is Christian hope, a better country, it says there, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And I love, by the way, the Old Testament language that just talks about this joining, this consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 52, verse 1. He says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. He's trying to encourage them. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. So it's a new, perfect place that's been made ready for us to inhabit, to enjoy. And guess what? The consummation of our marriage. Marriage. But it's the church being the bride. And who's the groom himself? Yeshua, Jesus Christ, right? Revelation 19.7 talks about the marriage supper and the Lamb. And it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Hmm. This is a good place to deal with a very common question. We might as well, by the way, about heaven. Get it out on the table, people often ask. They ask Jesus, 
the Sadducees did when they were trying to trip him up. And it was talking about the resurrection and uh, the final resurrection to come. And they asked him, is there going to be marriage in heaven? And Jesus answered in Matthew 22. He said, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Hmm. Think about this for starters so you can get a hold of this in your mind. We marry here on earth with at least two big reasons in mind. The first one may not be what you readily remember, but Ephesians 5 talks about. The number one reason you're married, those of you who are married in this room, you may not know as a Christian, is to picture to the world the relationship between the bride and the groom, Jesus and his church. That's Paul's words. And this text tells us that's no longer necessary because the bride of Christ has taken us to home sweet home to be with the groom. See, the world's not going to need that picture anymore when we're in the new heavens and earth. Second reason is procreation. Everyone in heaven, folks, lives forever, eternally. You don't need to be fruitful and multiply anymore because no one dies. No one needs to be replaced. There's no population concerns anymore. That's all done. And remember, marriage alone is to be between one man and one woman as the context for sexual relations. So marriage is not going to take place in that way anymore. Intimacy will no longer be necessary. But we're still going to be male and female. We'll recognize each other that way. Gender always matters. Yes, amen? Thankfully, the insanity of transgenderism will not be a part of heaven. And some of you might say, that's a bummer. No marriage, no little kids running around or family, etc. A big deal about heaven, think about it, is whatever we think is good or great here is going to be surpassed beyond imagination there. Okay? It's going to be better in our new and perfect place to come. God is preparing a place for us that we're not going to miss anything from here. Now, will that mean we're no longer going to love our wives or be best friends with them, in my case, or whatever? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We'll know each other. We'll be friends. We'll be with each other. It just means the intimacy part won't be a part of it, but everything goes better and will be better with Christ, okay? For instance, you want enjoyment, you want pleasure? Well, God's saying in heaven is where it's at. In the middle of Psalm 16, 11, it says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Psalm 84 adds, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Everyone in heaven walks uprightly, Right? I mean, if God promises not to withhold anything good from us now and in the, new millenn- in the millennial kingdom to come, you think he's going to withhold anything from us that's good in heaven? No. The idea is this. Our pleasures will be totally God-centered in Christ. So the key, again, for you to think about is what matters most. For instance, I'll give you an example. The disciples came back from a missions trip, and they whined to Jesus. We can't heal everybody. We can't cast out every demon. Why? 
You know what Jesus told them in Luke 10? He said, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Heaven. That's what matters most. And that means literally you have an assurance of a title deed in your hand, as it were, to property there. Your names as Christians are in the book of life. Amen? That's the place the Lord's preparing for us. And as we heard last time, there's a honeymoon with him that's just permanent. And we're being prepared for it. The language is interesting. We're being adorned for the husband. And that Greek word has the idea of being something that's beautifully dressed, arranged, put together, decorated. That's us. That's going to be us. It's put this way in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, Isaiah is saying, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. There's nothing better in life now or forever than to be with the person of God, with the people of God, and the place of God. That's heaven. Back in our text in verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, His home is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's a great voice, mega voice. Jesus is saying, Look, you got a new and better citizenship in this new home. And it's a phrase, I like this, about intimacy, making yourself at home, dwelling. In fact, the Greek word that was used for dwelling place there, you could translate it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as tabernacle or tent. And that echoes how God used to be intimately closer with Israel in the wilderness until the temple was built. And the idea in the verb form there is that God is going to live with us, be with us, among us. He's going to be close to us, His people. His people are His true children, which is the, tr the church of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Amen? I, I just think that's amazing. I mean, the biggest blessing in all the Bible, folks... And we know that from 1 John 3 is that when Jesus comes back from rule to rule and reign with us, we're going to see him face to face. We're going to see him as he truly is. And I love that idea. But we're going to see and be in the presence of the entire triune Godhead somehow in the new heavens and earth. And that reality, again, is why the best part of heaven is that God is with us in person, in the flesh. Not only the person of Jesus, but I think God the Father's presence is going to be there just permeating all of the atmosphere. You're going to see when we dig a little deeper here in the series, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no night, there's no light. God is the light that's constant. His presence is the atmosphere. God is in everything in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, and can you just understand, can you just begin to fathom being with Jesus face to face. You can hold him. You can touch him. You can dine with him. 
You can talk to him like you do with your loved ones now, here and now. We'll be doing that forever. I, I, you know, I've brought this up before. How does that work? Who's going to organize that? Is it like the deli counter at Publix should take a number? I, I, I mean, for me, I'm going to want to hog Jesus 24-7, but that can't be because that's prideful and there's no pride in sin in heaven. So how does that work out? I don't know. We're going to find out. It's going to be pretty cool. Imagine the fellowship, the conversations with not only Christ, all the saints over history, all those marvelous men and women you've been wanting to meet, the heroes of the faith you've been curious about, you've wanted to talk to. And I'm not making this up, okay, because Jesus was talking about to the disciples the faith of the Roman centurion that got saved and that came to see him. And Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. How's that? So you, dig, you got that Jewish roots thing going on, honey. You're finally going to be able to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have the matzah, break some bread. Hey, ho, beautiful thing. How about who wants to have coffee with Mother Mary? Think about it. What was it like? Mary, what's it like to carry and give birth and raise as a child, the Son of God in your home, what's it like, Mary, to have the perfect child? Right? Just, just, just what's the experience? Can we just have coffee and talk about that? I mean, I, I'm a curious person by nature. I like to know stuff. And I have all sorts of questions for these people and the person of God. More questions than you can imagine. You know, we talk about wanting to know God and abide in Christ and the joy that's going to bring us, that's going to happen every moment when we're in our new and perfect place. But wait, there's more. Not only a glorious reunion with the saints, but back in our text in verse 4, we look at the restoration at the end here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So in this new perfect place, death and disease are extinct. They don't exist in our perfect home. No one's annihilated. No one dies anymore in the new Jerusalem. Now, I want to give you something here. There's a big distinction for those that think that the new Eden on earth is the millennial kingdom, and that's going to be heaven on earth. A lot of our Reformed friends think that way. I don't think so. Close, but no. What happened was the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, they would intertwine in their prophecies language about the millennial kingdom, that's the thousand years to come after Christ comes back, and the new heavens and new earth. That's how it was revealed to them as best as they could understand. So you find elements of both the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth in places like Isaiah 60 and 65. Because some of those prophets, they employed language that applies to a degree to the millennium, but it's going to be fully realized in the restored earth, in the new heavens. So yes, so you know, when Jesus returns, he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. On this earth, for a thousand years, you're going to have an ideal place. But it's not perfect yet. 
It's not perfect yet because sin and death won't be completely done away with at that time. Isaiah 65, verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So in the millennial kingdom to come, people are going to have a very long life. Life expectancy will be much greater than today. If you die at 100, it would be like dying at 40, 50, or 60 today. Right? If an infant died young, they'd die like at 100. That kind of point is being made here. But nonetheless, they die, Isaiah 65 says, as does Revelation 20. But at the end of that reign... And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us death is the last enemy to be defeated. It's going to be destroyed. Death in Hades, which is that pit, that intermediate home of the unbeliever, that's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And that happens after the millennial kingdom is done, okay? That's when Satan's locked away forever. And that's what's called the second death, the lake of fire, judgment. But instead of all of that, when New Jerusalem comes down, in the makeover from heaven, we're going to have again perfection, like Isaiah 51. It says again, verse 11, the ransomed of the Lord shall return, come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing ah, shall flee away. Won't be any sighing, won't be any sorrow. Not at all. In fact, our text says that there's no more suffering. We know what that means. That's reflected in mourning. No one is sad. No one is grieving in the new heavens and new earth. There's no loud crying, no sobbing. None of that will be found there. Now, you might wonder this, and you can see we're getting some of these common heavenly questions along the way because the text just yields it to that. Will the saints... Will believers in heaven cry or mourn over what's happening here on earth? You asked about that before? How about your loved ones that are not in Christ and they're not to be found in heaven? Are you going to cry and mourn about that? Those are good debatable questions. But I was reminded this. You read Revelation 6 and 19 and it talks about a multitude in the church in the current realm of heaven as it is now. And you're seeing that they can see some things going on here. And they're praying to the Lord. Lord, when are you going to end this tribulation? Particularly in the tribulation time. So I think those in heaven right now, there are. And in the millennial kingdom, we'll mourn and we'll pray because we know what's going on. But we are not going to mourn or suffer in, in the new heavens. No. You won't because as you believe and understand the person of God and his place, all you're going to think about is evil, pain, and suffering that's past because you're going to share with God a perfect, holy, and just, and righteous perspective on everything that's ever happened. So you won't mourn. It's going to be cool. You're going to be with God, and when we think about what's gone on, you're going to go, I get it. I understand. Because the Bible says at that time we're going to have perfect knowledge. 
It also means, check this out, the total absence of hard labor. The curse of the fall is done, folks. There's no more thorns and thistles. Work is going to be productive. We're going to work. Adam and Eve worked before the fall. Yet it's going to be, I think, relatively easy. No misery in heaven, new heavens, new earth. No anguish, no anxiety, no worry. I'm sorry, there's going to be a lot of jobs there, but I think psychologists and psychiatrists are out of a job in heaven. I mean, why would you need them? Who's got a problem? Anyone? Church, there's going to be no more addictions, no trouble, no mental illness, special needs. None of that is there. And you know why? Because it's one of the best parts of our perfect place. There's no more sin. Not a sinful word, thought, or deed. And sin, in one way, shape, or form, is at the root of everything bad that happens here, physically, emotionally, spiritually, evil, pain, suffering. It all comes from either our personal sin or corporate sin. I think of Paul here, his tug-of-war in the flesh with Romans 7, remember? And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That was a rhetorical question. He knew who was going to deliver him, Christ, at the second coming. You and I won't have anything to confess and repent of anymore in the new heaven. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Repentance, what's that? When John refers to the former things here as having passed away or disappeared, he means those things that are most evil are, are enemies. They're going to go away. There's no hate in heaven. Remember in 1 John when he says, do not love the world or the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the flesh, the pride of life. He's talking about those things that are former things. He says there they're passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides, stays forever. So those things are gone in the new heaven. Isaiah said in the new Jerusalem, there's just nothing unclean there. And that's because righteousness is going to reign. 2 Peter 3 affirms that as well. In fact, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, check this out. I want you to go there. He was facing pain. He was facing emotional pain, spiritual pain, great persecution. I want you to hear his reaction. And it's a reaction of what we again refer to in the Christian faith as hope. 2 Corinthians 4 Verses 16 and 17 says, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self, there's the body again, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's saying whatever you endure in this life cannot be compared with the glory that it's producing in you in the life to come. That's hope, people. The hope of heaven is the hope of glory. That's what keeps us going here and now in tough times. Hope, again, is the confident, excited expectation of the future. We have that. The world does not have that. The world has no clue whatsoever of what's happening tomorrow to them or to the planet. All they can do is guess. We just have it. We know how the story ends. We win. So what's life going to be like in heaven? You're going to work? You're going to play? Well, that goes to the issue again of continuity and 
discontinuity. I think there's going to be both. Again, I think there's going to be aspects of what we have now in this life and we enjoy that's going to continue, continuity. It's just going to be way better in the future. I, I look at Andy there, and he's a big guy. I'm going to be able to play basketball with Andy. I'm, I, I may be able to dunk on your head one time, and it'll be a beautiful thing. And you won't be upset by that because it's in heaven, right? We're in heaven. There's going to be nothing done that's sinful. Everything that we do that we might have done here will be restored or redeemed in a way. I'll give you a picture of it. One of my favorite movies, Rob and I were just talking about this, as you know, as you might know, is Field of Dreams, okay? It's a movie immersed in baseball. And in one of the best scenes of the movie, a father who supposedly come back from heaven, he returns to play catch here with his son on this beautiful baseball diamond, this field. And he asks him, he asks his son if this is heaven. And the son says, no, it's Iowa. But then as the son looks around and he sees this beautiful field and the way the game could be, he says, maybe this is heaven. That just gives you, I thought, a little insight into what people are looking for when they talk about heaven. They want in paradise a perfect version of this of what we have, in a sense. I mean, if you ask me if there's going to be baseball in heaven, I would say, why not? Right? Uh, some fans that have visited Fenway Park, as David and I had the privilege to do in Boston this last weekend, they would say that's heaven on earth. They would. But we know there's going to be play in heaven. Because you know where there's going to be play in the millennial kingdom? Zechariah 8.5 probably talking about that kingdom, said, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. So God, Psalm 84 says, doesn't withhold any good thing from us. So if we're going to play in the millennial kingdom, which is as close to Eden and heaven on earth as you're going to get, is he going to take that away from us in the new heavens and earth? I don't think so. So will competitive sports carry over into this world? I don't know if you like to play golf or tennis or whatever. I think it'll continue. I just think in a non-sinful way. No fighting on the field, in the stands. No one gets hurt. I would think. Good, clean competition. You know, I'd welcome that. And I know I'm speculating a little on this, but I believe there's every reason to expect things like that because there is continuity. I mentioned 1 Corinthians says we're going to have perfect knowledge. So no more confusion. Ignorance on big, unanswered questions. I look forward to that. There's going to be perfect love. No more petty arguments. No more anger. And remember, as we touched on last time, we're going to have already perfect bodies. What does that sound like? 1 Corinthians 15. We're almost done here. Verse 42, talking about the resurrection of the dead. Paul writes, What is sown, what's put in the ground, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. He's talking about your bodies. When you die, generally you go on the ground, and that wastes away. But what is raised, resurrected, is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, he says. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I love that. 
Skip over down to verse 53 if you're there. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. You will live forever. You will live forever in a perfected version of yourself. Very nice. I mean, people, what more do we ask for? Finally, verse 5 in our text. And it ends, and he, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's just a summary statement. The one who's talking here is the one seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. Just like it'll say in verse 6 and in chapter 1, we're talking about the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, if you were wondering. That's just saying Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the beginning and the end of everything. 1 Corinthians, we're new creations, now on earth, because the old has passed away. So in a sense, you're new, right? The new has come, old things have passed away, but he's going to do that completely with the new Jerusalem. You know, it's what we look for. We, we anxiously anticipate this because it is our new and perfect place. I got to give you Romans 8 one more time. The great Romans 8. By the way, I think it happens to be the greatest chapter in all the Bible, but that's just me. Romans 8, 22. Paul writes, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Oh. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So you have a down payment of this future life now because you have the Holy Spirit in you if you're in Christ. But we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We just can't wait for those bodies. For in this, what? Hope. We were saved. You got to hope for that resurrection body. We're talking about what Christ is going to do to you as a cosmic remodeling job. That's really good. And on the whole world. And so John's commanded to write all this down. This book, the end and the new beginning of everything, he says, because it's the real deal. This word must be trusted. It can be trusted. And in fact, it's true. And he says, no one should or can add or subtract anything from this book. Let me make this clear, folks. Nothing I've said here over the past several minutes is going to make as much sense to you as it should if your hope is tied up in this world and in your bucket list now. If you're living your bucket list now, that will not mean as much to you. You understand? That's a big deal. As I close, the main idea here to come away with is that God made you to desire things. Desire is not bad at all. Don't let anybody tell you different. The issue is what you desire. Okay? Randy Alcorn has a terrific book on heaven. It's just called Heaven. And he wrote there that he made us to desire three things, basically. A resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. That's God's plan for you and me. That sounds like a pretty good plan. To do that, to grow that desire, you need to do what Paul wrote the Colossian church to do. Last scripture, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. 
He's writing to Christians, and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, he means spiritually there, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Because this is temporary. This is passing away. This is old. The new is what we're looking forward to. You need to talk about heaven more to people and to yourselves. Preach it to yourselves. We have so many children in the room. You with families with children. This is a neglected doctrine. Teach them, talk to them about heaven. It's their future eternal home, sweet home. Just to paraphrase J.C. Ryle, if this is our end game, heaven, if it's our destiny, future, and hope, don't you think we should get to know it pretty well? Let's pray. Father, we are excited. We need to be excited. We need to hope in heaven above, the hope of glory. There was a TV show years ago that uh, my family and I like to watch, Lord, Extreme Makeover. A needy home, needy family, for whatever reason, would have a home that was in bad shape and they would send them on vacation a little bit, something like a millennial kingdom maybe, and they would remodel the house, make it brand spanking new so when they walked in there, it was just this gorgeous, perfect for them place. Lord, I'm looking forward to that extreme makeover you're going to do on this planet and in our lives. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the giving tab at the top of the homepage.